Now, over that period of time, this professional ministry, I have preached dozens, perhaps hundreds, I did not go back and count, of sermons from the book of Acts. And I've taught just as many lessons from it uh, in various classes. Never once have I preached or taught Acts 13, 6 through 12. So instead of pulling out a golden oldie and dusting it off for you good folks, which I was hoping I could do, I had to start from scratch and actually work on it. And for as long as I've been acquainted with this story that we'll consider this morning, I never once said to myself, whoa, I gotta preach that. Until earlier this month, when I began saying to myself, whoa, I gotta preach that? Yes, I do. So here we go. Now, if you are ever able to read through Acts in one sitting, which I I did once in my whole life, back in college on a bus from Boston to Hyannis, which is just about the right amount of time if you want to try it. But if you read through it all at once, you'll realize that with all of the extraordinary stories about Peter and James and John and Cornelius and Paul, the protagonist, the central character in the whole book, isn't any of those heroes of our faith. It's the Holy Spirit. He is the mover and the shaker. He personally directs the entire operation of the gospel going out into the world. But that's another sermon and I only get to preach one today. As Pastor Tom shared with us last week, Paul and Barnabas have been called by the Holy Spirit for a work to which the Holy Spirit says, I have called them. So after the church leaders in Antioch fast and pray about what the Spirit has said to them, Paul and Barnabas set out. And we know that Barnabas and John Mark, who is with them, he's the author of the Gospel of Mark, that they're relatives, John Mark and Barnabas, cousins of some sort, and that Barnabas is from the island of Cyprus. So it is possible that John Mark may have family there as well. Certainly Barnabas does. And although scripture does not say so specifically, I suspect that Barnabas's connection with and his personal attachment to his own homeland, 
where he was raised, that that could well have been what prompted them to start there, in Cyprus. I could picture Barnabas saying, you know, Paul, Cyprus, I got all this family, let's start there. Because there's no indication that they're supposed to start anywhere in particular. But that's where they begin. On what we have come to call Paul's first missionary journey. It's about 45 AD. Less than 15 years after Jesus had told his original disciples, this is pre-Paul, of course, just before returning to heaven from whence he had come, he said to them, and by extension to all of us, Acts 1.8, you, and he was speaking to them specifically, but referring to all disciples, you will receive Power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Geographically, concentric circles starting from where they were at the time that dot in the middle that's where they are branching out from there to the whole world none of the apostles jump from Jerusalem to India or Europe wherever they they start from where they are and they move out from there Now, the Lord has not altered this strategy to be faithful witnesses for Christ in this world. We are to begin not where we aren't, but where we are in our little worlds. So that's you and I, the dot in the middle. We're to start there in our own little worlds of our families, our marriages, our friends. Think about these. Marriages, then family, then friends, neighbors, co-workers, moving outward in ever-expanding concentric circles as we go through life as the Holy Spirit directs our lives so just to review from verses 4 and 5 last week the two of them and they do have some helpers with them that we know the two of them Paul and Barnabas sent on their way by the Holy Spirit went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus so I decided to borrow Tom's map from last week Seleucia, Antioch, where they are, that's the star on the furthermost right part of the screen. And Seleucia is the port city of 
Antioch. Get there in a minute. Back to the scripture. So they went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. That's that island. When they arrived at Salamis, which is on the island of Cyprus, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. That's how we know John was here. So Seleucia, which is in modern day, right on the Syrian-Turkish coastline, that was the ancient seaport of the city of Antioch. It's about 15 miles away, so it would take Saul and Barnabas about two days to walk from Antioch to Seleucia. And Seleucia is only about 60 miles away to Cyprus. You can see it's, it's just the closest landmass off of that port city. 60 miles away, straight shot. So in keeping with Jesus' own method, his, his MO, Jesus' way of doing it, and this was the earliest approach of all the apostles, was to go first with the gospel to Jewish communities and proclaim to Jewish congregations that the Jewish Messiah, who is Jesus of Nazareth, has finally come. Now, in Salamis, which is the, that would be east, the easternmost port in um, Crete, it's a good-sized city. About 100,000 people lived there, which is about half the size of Worcester for context. There would have been several synagogues in that city. It only takes 10 adult men to form a synagogue. There were a lot of them. But Luke doesn't tell us anything about any of those interactions between Saul and Barnabas and the Jewish congregations, which you would think, and this is the first, this is the first missionary journey. The Holy Spirit has explicitly sent these guys out. This is huge. But there's not a word about any of that dialogue or preaching or interaction between Paul and these Jewish congregations. He just doesn't say a word. And that's really odd. Given how much ink Luke would eventually spill in his book of Acts, describing in considerable detail exactly what Paul would preach in the synagogues and how that message was received. Often enough, is not terribly well. It's almost as if Luke just wants to get us to this one little episode, which... At long last, we will now finally read. It's on page 1092. Just picking up from exactly where Pastor Tom left off last week. So we just keep moving. This is the word of the Lord. Acts chapter 13, beginning with verse 6. They traveled through the whole island until they came 
to Paphos. There, they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elymas and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now, the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind. And for a time, you will be unable to see the light of the sun. Immediately, mist and darkness came over him. And he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, uh, he was pretty convinced. He believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. The end of the reading of the word of the Lord. Now, as scripture says, the whole island. So there's, there's a, uh, let's see, that would be a zoom in on just Cyprus. So you can see Seleucia, how close Antioch is. They sail to Salamis. They walk the whole length of the island to Paphos, and this story happens. And then they'll leave, and Luke will continue uh, later on. So, again, like with Salamis and the landing there with all of the Jewish population that was there, we have nothing. Luke records nothing about this trip. They're walking the whole length of the island of Cyprus. But Luke tells us nothing about it, and it's a hundred miles. Now remember, this is the first missionary journey. Why is there nothing? A hundred miles, so it's going to take at least a couple of weeks And they are almost certainly preaching like they were at Seleucia, Salamis, excuse me. They're preaching in synagogues all along the way. There's Jewish communities everywhere. They're not going to pass up those opportunities. So in any event, Luke is silent until they get to the other side of the island, Paphos. And there, at least in Luke's mind, things Get interesting. They meet a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, meaning son of Jesus. Bar is Hebrew for son of, or son of Joshua. Jesus and Joshua are the same names in Hebrew, just different vocalizations. But this guy is also called Elimas, and that's what we'll call him, Elimas. So who is this guy? He's a sorcerer. The word Luke uses here, translated sorcerer, is 
Magus. That's the singular of the same word Matthew uses in his gospel for magi, the wise men. And this, of course, is where we get our word magician. We've all seen magicians or illusionists, as they prefer to be called, which is far more accurate. As magicians don't do magic. There is no magic. What magicians do are illusions, tricks, sleights of hand. Now you see it, now you don't. Now magic, as magic, only works when you have unknowing or gullible observers who are ready and willing and therefore capable of being fooled. Now in the ancient world, magi were actually professionally trained scholars. And they would study such diverse subjects as some of the what we would consider now weirder ones, like astrology, fortune-telling, dream interpretation, healing potions and remedies. But they would also study philosophy and engineering, mathematics, and astronomy. And political leaders would always have magi on hand, like on their staff. And there's a lot of these guys in Scripture. They show up all over the place, starting with Moses in Egypt. Elimas is one such counselor or advisor to the proconsul Sergius Paulus, who is Rome's appointed government official the single most powerful man on the island of Cyprus. Now, the fact that Elimas is a Jew and a false prophet means, for the purposes of our story, as, as we can see, that against a man like Paul, also a Jew... And also wants a false prophet in his own right. Elimus doesn't stand a chance. Not only is Paul a trained and experienced debater. He is also in this exchange with Elimus. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Elimus doesn't stand a chance. Not a fair fight. So when Paul confronts Elimas, it's like looking in a mirror of how and who he used to be. And by his own admission, Paul was far worse than Elimas. He was going through way more extensive extremes to turn people away from the faith than Elimus ever thought of. 
And so Paul says to Timothy, even though I was once a blasphemer like Elymas and a persecutor, who Elymas probably wasn't, and a violent man, even though that was me, I was shown mercy. Because, like all the rest of us, I acted in ignorance and unbelief. Reason enough for God to show mercy. So Paul locks eyes with Elymas. Sergius Paulus is right there. Big audience. You're a child of the devil. An enemy of everything that's right, full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the ways of the Lord? Or does Paul sound more like this? Elemas. You are a child of the devil, an enemy of all that's right, just like I was, full of all sorts of deceit and trickery. Elemas, will you not stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? And what if Paul, remembering the Bible doesn't say this right out front, but bear with me. Just imagine. I mean, Paul is remembering what it took for God to get his attention. How far God had to go to get him to stop and pay attention. So Paul goes for the spiritual throat. Not in anger, but in compassion for this lost, erring, self-deceived fellow Jew so very much like himself before he was shown mercy. And Paul says to him, and I believe he said this sadly, not in anger, I always read this as Paul being angry and, you know, calling down the wrath of God upon Elymas and this part of that. But as I was working on this for the first time, never having used it before or taught it or preached it, I thought to myself, this is, this is Paul Redu revisited. And he says, and I think with great sadness and compassion, that the hand of the Lord is now against you. Or upon you is literally what it's, which is interesting. The hand of the Lord is upon you, and you're going to be blind. Just like I was. For time, you'll be unable to see the light of the sun. Which is what happened to me. And so... It was, immediately. Which was enough for Sergius to come to faith. 
After verse 11, Elymas drops out of the pages of Scripture completely. He's never mentioned or even alluded to again anywhere. But we can know, we do know, Elymas eventually regained his sight after a time. We don't know how long, but he did because Paul said he would. So what happened then? Paul and Barnabas have left. They've moved on. Elymas finally can see again. What happened to him? Did he dig in his heels even deeper against the ways of the Lord? Or did this temporary affliction, like with Paul, this temporary blindness actually open his eyes to see? We will find out one day. So when you get there, say, Lord, where is El- Is Elymas here? I just... End of story. I mean, it's a really cool, interesting story for sure. But what do we do with it? What can we take from this episode and apply in our own lives? Well, I don't know. (laughs) Just kidding. I actually do have a suggestion. Which will bring us finally back to our title, Being a Good Example. We read 1 Timothy 1.13. This is just one line later. Paul's letter to Timothy. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Now, Paul has had a lot of competition over the centuries. He's using hyperbole to make a point. I would, I would claim that myself. The old King James was chief of sinners. Christ came into the world to save people like me, is what he's saying. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, the chief of sinners, in me, Christ Jesus might display, manifest, show forth, advertise his immense and the old NIV says unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life yes you and I dear friends you and I are most excellent examples indeed of just how patient the Lord really is. We, you and I, each 
individually and certainly corporately, we are flashing neon billboard signs of just what a good God we serve. He saved me and he saved you to show off himself. Not us, right? To show off himself. He needs people like us to show the world what he can do. He saved you and me to display in me, in us, in my little world of my concentric circles. He wants to prove to those who have not yet come to believe. He wants to prove the reach of his incredible forgiveness. Just imagine if we listed just in this little room the sins that God has forgiven among us. What a small sample size, but what a huge testimony of his mercy, right? So he saved us to to show the world the extent of his long-suffering grace to display the depth of his unfathomable love. Gary Hayward, Exhibit A. I saved the likes of him. I can save you. I can save anybody, anytime. No one is ever beyond the reach of my mercy and grace. That's why we're here, people. And in our efforts to be witnesses, as Jesus has commanded us to do, witnesses of his love, we need to expect some pushback. Right? We're going to get it. We can't be intimidated or fearful by that. It's just it's out there. We're going to get it sometimes. But we can also expect with certainty because it is so true that as we share Christ with others in the context of what he's done for me, we are going to find hearts that are wide open, that are willing and ready to walk away from their own darkness into the marvelous light and life of Christ. How they respond to what we share about what God has done for me, God has done for you, how they respond, that's not our responsibility. That's not our job. What is our responsibility? What is my job and your job is to speak humbly, simply. And if we're remembering the words of Paul, how can we speak but humbly? I, my friend, I'm an example of God's incredible mercy. You've got nothing to worry about. 
to speak in that humility, imploring that mercy and that grace of just what God has done for me. And to say to people, I was going down. And he grabbed me. He grabbed my hand. When I had no hope, I had no way to go. I had nowhere to turn. He brought me into wide open spaces. When I was empty, I was lonely, broken. He carried me. He bound up my wounds. And this isn't a one-shot deal. He still does this day to day in my life. Right? He keeps at it because we get wounded. We get broken. We get lost. We are broken. We are lost. I mean, we are nothing without his power in us. It's him. It's him. He saved us so he could show what he is like. And as long as we remember that, friends, we will have no difficulty being witnesses for our Lord and Savior Christ. And that's what people need to hear. They're like, they're they're sitting there listening to us and they're like, you mean, you mean he will never leave me? Yeah, that's what we mean. He'll always help me? Yeah, that's what we mean. Because he did it for the likes of me.